Shamai a Kroiso. Hello and welcome to the CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcasts. I'm Stephen Hedges. This week we take a trip down under to talk to teacher and amateur historian Les Everett, who's been documenting Australia's cricketing past by photographing Western Australia's lost cricket pitches. We got him together with our museum volunteer Tony Davis, who's undertaking the same task here in Wales. It's a very warm welcome to the CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket podcast to Les Everett. Les, hi. Hi, Steve. And, Great to be here. Uh, we also have with us a uh, museum volunteer, Tony Davis. Hello, Tony. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Les. Great to be with you. So we're going to come on to talking about the link between the two of you, which is uh, lost cricket grounds. But before we do that, Les, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, growing up how cricket entered your life and your playing career, if that's a possibility. Right. Oh, well, how long do we have at my uh, <laughs> illustrious career? Uh, I'm from uh, the gold mining town of uh, Kalgoorlie Boulder. That's where I first played cricket on the Boulder Oval. Turf pitch, actually, my first ever game. But uh, often they were just on concrete games on gravel. My early cricket from the age of about 10, 9 or 10, and then... I went to Perth to go to, uh, to study to be a teacher, didn't play for a few years. And then on my first um, teaching post was in a uh, wheat belt, West Australian town called Corrigan. And I resumed playing cricket there. I was there for three years, four seasons. And then when I came to Perth, I played initially with uh, West Perth. Our, our home ground and our training ground was the Wacker. I was only a third grade player. To go to training at the Wacker and play the odd game there was my first game for West Perth. It was a third grade game on the Wacker. So it was pretty uh, a, a pretty uh, special place to play. And then I played um, for various teams after that and continued on as a veteran and into, my, uh, into my sort of early to mid-40s and then decided that uh, my back wouldn't <laughs> keep up with it for much longer, so I, I gave it away. So I played cricket for a long time, probably... Uh, you know, thirty odd years that I I played for. And you were um, a bowler primarily, yes. Yeah, a bowler, left arm, and most teams that I played for, I opened the bowling. Uh, and at times, particularly at Corrigan, I could swing the ball, and that's a big advantage. But when I came back to Perth, something strange happened, and I really lost a lot of the swing. You know, when you think about people like Bob Massey and Terry Alderman and Ken McClay, Ken McClay, you think of great swing bowlers in uh, that played in Perth, but for me. When I got back from the wheat belt into Perth, it, just, <laughs> it stopped swinging. So I became more of a, you know, you had to try other things, try to cut the ball. And so I was predominantly a opening bowler and a number 11 batsman. Tony, do you want to tell us a little bit about your, your cricketing background? Yeah, sure. I was, um, I was born in, um, in Cardiff in 1947. Um, I must say my father played county cricket for Glamorgan from 1935 to 1958, would you believe? Of course, the war... The war interrupted his career somewhat. To say that I was born into a cricket family would be an understatement. I can remember being taken to, to watch county cricket and I watched, I watched my father play until he retired in 19, 1958. And I, I've been watching cricket ever since. But I have also played, I, I had quite a successful schoolboy um, cricket career. I then went to play club cricket in South Wales. I played for Cardiff for a number of years. I played on the old Cardiff Arms Park, which was a unique experience, which unfortunately is no longer there, as it's now the Millennium Rugby Stadium. I then went on to play for Penarth for 20-odd years. I played a lot of um, club cricket through different sides and visited a lot of grounds in South Wales. 
this is probably where I'm itching to sort of find out more details of clubs which are no longer playing in South Wales. Um, hopefully that um, Les might give me a few um, ideas how to follow some of these uh, grounds up. But of course, South Wales is very much smaller than Australia. <laughs> Stephen, you're keen to talk about uh, Glamorgan beating Australia a couple of times, but that, yeah. you know, they would play, they'd play we'll, all the time. We'll skip over that now, Les. Okay, <laughs> we need to linger on that a little bit. <laughs> you mentioned Graham McKenzie to me in one of the emails you sent. Was he yeah. a hero of yours? I'm not a great supporter of the Australian team or anything like that because I've just found them too obnoxious over the years. Graham McKenzie was you know, West Australian. He actually went to school at John Curtin Senior High School, which is over the road from where I am now. So it's... Uh, I could throw a cricket ball, probably throw my arm out, but I could throw a cricket ball into John Curtin High School. That's where Graham McKenzie went to school. We didn't have television until 1970 in Calgary and Boulder. So when I first saw him on TV with that relaxed sort of run-in and then he did, a, but he would then do this sort of big stretch and then bowl, a big um, twist of the, of the, um, the torso. It was just so powerful and so beautiful that it was just, you know, it was one of the, those things. So Graham McKenzie was a great hero to me and someone that was mistreated really by the Australian Cricket Board. Um, he, when he was on the verge of breaking Richie Benno's test wickets um, record for Australia, he was rested. He would have uh, overcome, uh, you know, overtaken Richie Benno at that stage. But, but you know, great fast bowler. And he ended up playing county cricket with Leicestershire, is that right? Yes, that's right, yeah. And that's when he destroyed Glamorgan on one occasion. Yes, what destruction is, is, is the right word. He took seven <laughs> for eight uh, in the match they played uh, in August 1971. What's Morgan his nickname, was... Garth? Yes, yes, yes. It was yeah. Garth, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, he took about so. 240-odd test yeah. wickets, and which, you know, by today's same standards, but they just, just didn't play so many tests in those days. You know, they, yeah. So, they, yeah. you know, these 700 wicket guys, they're playing tests every five minutes, so it's a bit, you know, a bit easier. Still difficult, but... I have quite a, a nice story about, about him. He was very friendly with a guy called Colin Milburn, and, and they, they built up a friendship. On his return to the UK, both Mackenzie and, uh, and Milburn um, were on the same boat together. And Mill told the story uh, after dinner speech that they drank their way back to Britain. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, yes, I think uh, Colin, Colin Milburn was so much loved because he played for Western Australia. Yeah. And, uh, he, his greatest feat was a game against Queensland where he, I think he scored 243. He did, uh, yeah. Uh, in, in partnership with my real boyhood hero was... Uh, um, a man called Derek Chadwick. He was an opening batsman. He opened the bat batting for WA with Colin Milburn, but he was also a really good a champion Australian rules footballer for the team that I supported, East Perth. They had a partnership of 330 opening partnerships, and, and Chad Chaddy scored 93, he didn't <laughs> and Milburn scored 240, including uh, 100 in a session at one, at one stage. I think he scored 120 in, in the, the middle session yeah. in the game. Um, yeah. yeah, he was marvelous. He, he didn't like to run too much, so he. Uh, That's he must, right. Yeah. yeah. So he was, again, it was at that time where I, I, didn't, I rarely saw him bat, but he must have been highly entertaining to watch. He was and, very a big man, very entertaining to watch. Yes. And, and yes. You, would, you would imagine that the the, the, um, the partnership. You've got this uh, big man 
Milburn, um, you know, not not an athlete. And then you've got the footballer who who was supremely fit, fast, agile, all that yeah. sort of stuff. But you don't hear too much about too many runouts between the two of them. So they must <laughs> they must have had a good understanding. Yeah, Chatty yeah. would have known when not to run. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, the, the two victories that Kilmorgan had over uh, uh, the Australian Australians, uh, 1964 and 68, I guess quite rightly are remembered very fondly by Glamorgan supporters. And uh, did the news of those uh, matches ever get back to Australia? Did, did people hear about them? And- I do remember that they were, Australia was beaten by Glamorgan, and that would have been the first time I'd ever heard of Glamorgan. So the 68 tour was the first tour of England that I really, really remember. I was, I was right on, in, on top of that one but and I do remember that uh, I, I did have a quick look at the, uh, the, the the details of those games and the names that struck that stood out for me in the Australian team that played against Glamorgan were Bob Inverarity and uh, yeah, Ashley John, Mallet yeah John John Inverarity so is um, RJ Inverarity but John John Inverarity was um, West Australian a slow good batsman and also a, a left arm Finger spinner, a wonderful um, Sheffield Shield player. Didn't, didn't play a lot of tests, but did all right. He's a very slow batsman and a great captain. And, and a lot, many people suggested that he should have should have captained Australia. And maybe in England, with the different, you know, Australia always had that thing: the best player is the captain, or the close to the best player is the captain. In, in under the really sort of uh, model, Inverarity would have captained Australia, and uh, he, yeah, he, he was. Very in Western Australia was under his leadership was very successful. And Ashley Mallet, yes, originally from Western Australia as well, but played for South Australia mainly as a you know wonderful off spinner. Very and tall, I got that right. Very tall and slender. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a good, good writer too. He's written a few books on cricket. And the the in the second innings of that match in '68, chap by the name of Andrew Sheehan got 137. Yeah, Paul Sheehan. Paul Sheehan, yeah, isn't that funny? That's A.P. Sheehan and uh, R.J. Inverarity, yes. Okay. Kenneth Doug, Kenneth Doug Walters, yeah. This is an, it must be an Australian thing. But, um, yeah, Paul Sheehan was this, he was a, 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 a funny player, Paul Sheehan. People used to say of uh, him that it was harder to get out of the Australian team than into it because it took a long time. He was a really good-looking man, beautiful fieldsman, but he never used to make any runs, and it always used to amuse me, uh, amuse me that he was he retained his place. Well, it must it took him a long time before he, he made a hundred in the West Indies at some stage. But uh, I, I I don't know his um, career details, but I don't think they'd be that flattering. I think he would have averaged in the thirties. One of the things that struck me, Les, reading about your work on the lost grounds of Western Australia was the huge differences between that country and our own in, in Wales. Give us a brief kind of sense of, of, of Western Australia and what it's like, the geography. and yeah, West Australia is a big place. It'd be over 30,000 kilometres that I've travelled in the last... Um, it's about 18 months I've been doing this. What, I've, what I'm finding, that there's... Uh, so a lot of... The, there's... Uh, in Western Australia, there are some really arid places. There are some lush places in the south... Uh, and uh, to the east, where the, uh, the what we call the wheat belt, where the wheat is grown, it's a harsh environment in its, in its uh, own way too, because of the incredible um, 
clearing of land that that went on when this land was first developed. I'm finding cricket pitches uh, just in old ovals that are abandoned. So you can see it was it's a, an oval. Sometimes there's even some kind of infrastructure, like some seats or an old shed there. So there's those sorts of uh, places. And they're, they're the ones I saw initially when I started doing this. But then as you, you start to look a bit more closely, you'll, see, you'll find... Um, a pitch, a cricket pitch in what is bush, just that nature has completely taken over and it's you can't even imagine that there could have been any sort of uh, sport played in some of the some of the places. And in some cases, there are trees growing out of the middle of a cricket pitch. You know, it's 60, 70 years since, since, since anything's happened and, and the bush has just taken over. The other interesting place that I find them is uh, in paddocks, in wheat paddocks, and uh, fields and uh, cow paddocks. So that the, the, were once the cricket ground and now, now been uh, taken over for farming. I found a few on golf courses. So, uh, <laughs> you know, the, once once uh, an area was the, uh, the cricket ground and football ground and uh, then the golf course uh, took over, but the pitch is still there. The good thing about the old, the, these concrete cricket pitches is that they don't go away. They'll be there forever unless someone digs them up. But the thing I find in going around is that is, is this idea of community that in places like the wheat belt and in some of the mining areas, these people, the, the early farmers were doing this ridiculous, ridiculously hard work in clearing land, you know, knocking down trees, burning off, doing all this stuff, which they probably overdid a little bit. Then there was this idea, obviously, they thought, there's got to be more to life than this. So they would build a community hall, clear a, a, an area of land for tennis courts and uh, an oval to play Australian football and cricket. Farmers tend to leave the cricket pitches alone. They'll work around them. So, you know, you'll have a, you know, a, a beautiful uh, wheat crop growing and then in, in the, the middle of it is a, a cricket pitch and they just work around it. Tony, what's your experience of the the grounds that you've identified in South Wales? Similar, that it were linked to the community and its work? I think it's slightly different because I've come across a number of grounds which were set up by industrial companies. I mean, Cardiff Docks was the biggest port in, in the world because it was exporting coal. And there was a number of steel companies set themselves up to produce steel for the, for the mines around South Wales. So we have a, a situation where the companies looked after their employees. And when I say looked after them, they, they looked after them medically. They, they tried to provide them with, with housing accommodation. But the other thing which they attempted to do was to, um, which they were successful in doing, was set up sporting um, facilities. So football and cricket especially were very much part of the life of, of guys who worked in, in, in South Wales for the various steel companies. It, that carried on for a number of years, probably in, into the early 60s, when sadly the industrial side of South Wales started to, to go downhill somewhat and resulted in, in the closure of a number of these um, steelworks and, and also cricket, cricket pitches and football pitches. I'm interested with Les, who would have been playing cricket in, on, on, um, out in the middle of the desert, Les? Would, would they be miners or, or you know, yeah. what sort of... What sort of community would have taken use of those facilities? A lot of the places I've seen, it would have been farming communities. I spoke to a farmer once uh, who said that uh, his um, local team was made up basically of his family and the 
people who worked for him. And he said when they hired someone, they didn't ask, uh, they didn't care if they could drive a tractor or something. They, their first question they asked was, do you play cricket? They play cricket. <laughs> because they said, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, yeah. can, we, we can teach him how to uh, drive a tractor, but yeah. uh, you know, cricket's a bit, bit more specialised. But you might have seen Gideon Haig's um, thing in the, in the Cricketer magazine. What I used there was a place called Big Bell, and uh, yeah. that's a mining, mining company just south of Mekathara. There, that was definitely the mining company that helped build that facility. That, that town um, had, had three cricket teams at one stage in that town. I can remember one of the teams is called uh, Underground and one of the teams was called Surface. So miners who worked on the surface formed a team and the underground miners formed a team and then there was another one. Let's say it was called Office or something like that, or Towns. It was called Towns. So I bet, I bet, were... I, I bet that cricket was competitive then. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> uh, and the town, the town also, I think it started sort of not mid-1930s with, with great enthusiasm. They built a wonderful hotel that's still sort of standing. The ruins of the hotel are still standing. Three cricket teams, great enthusiasm. By 1955, it was completely gone. So it just didn't, you know, the, the gold, the mining gold didn't last. What I find quite incredible is that you're able to go and find these, these cricket pitches, which they played on. To do that in South Wales would be virtually impossible because they would have sold the, the cricket grounds and they're now housing estates um, or, 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 or even um, small industrial estates. So the actual location has just disappeared off the face of the earth. Can I ask you both, what intrigues you about these grounds? One of the things which probably differs to Australia was um, we played on grass wickets, grass pitches. We didn't have concrete or matting. The, the, all the grounds were grass. So everybody had a grounds which meant that the, the ground was particularly well looked after in all cases. Um, one ground I found in Newport, in Whiteheads, um, for example, they had two professional groundsmen looking after the ground um, and paid for by the company. Extraordinary amounts of time and effort put into keeping, preserving the grass wickets. Looking at this photograph of the big bell, Les, um, the concrete wicket didn't need that much attention, did it? <laughs> <laughs> They would be, um, they'd be covered in uh, what they called coir matting. And that, that right. would be, that, that had to be, um, I've never seen it myself, but it, that had to be sort of pegged down in some way, subtly, yeah. I suppose. They didn't have big pegs on, on the edge of the pitch, but there was that. And then when I, I've played on uh, pitches that were covered in something called melthoid, which is a sort of a tarry black stuff that was pretty horrible. And now, in a lot of the um, suburban and country grounds, they have a sort of synthetic turf, which looks beautiful. Those those wickets, how would they have played, lads? Would they? I'm assuming they'd be very kind of fast. Yeah, they are pretty terrible for bowlers because um, you know you'd open the bowling after about two or three overs, the ball was pretty much buggered. It was it had chunks out of it because it's you know every shot was going across gravel, hitting stones and so on. <laughs> uh, so. And and just hitting that pitch, it would just get darker, and you know it was it was uh, bowling was uh, horrendous, really. You could you could have been bowling reverse. That, yes, yes, I should have thought if, of that. If, <laughs> if, you'd, if, if you'd known about it at the time. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so no, no, they weren't fast. Although I'm sure you know some of them, you know, there'd, there'd be different conditions like anything else. But generally, 
they were pretty good for batsmen. But looking back through the old days, from old newspapers, it's the big scores were very, very rare. There was that they didn't, but this might have been that the batsmen just weren't very good. I don't know. <laughs> um, big, you didn't see too many big scores. Can you tell us a little bit, Les, about how uh, Tony can uh, join in as well with this? How you went about finding some of these grounds? Yeah, I, the, this is the, my my, the, my first project. The one I've been doing for longest is actually taking photographs of Australian football scoreboards. So this idea of driving around the place um, and taking photos at sporting sporting places is something I've been doing for a long time, over ten years. I've got a website called Scoreboard Pressure. That's got about six or seven hundred scoreboards up on it. I decided to go and have a look at some of the grounds that I'd played at, played cricket at when I was uh, at Corrigan to see if they had, because I knew they were football grounds as well, to see if they had a scoreboard at them and see, to see what they were like. I went to, there's three places, Shackleton, Ardith and Babakin. Babakin was still pretty good, had a nice, nice synthetic turf wicket on it, looked better than when I'd played there. The other two places, no one played there anymore. They were starting to have that sort of crumbled look about them this concept of abandoned cricket pitches just came to mind immediately and became an obsession that quickly. I was from, from that, I got back from that little trip and thought this is, this is something else. This is something new to, to go on to. And it, I became obsessed with it straight away. And then I knew I was sort of onto something. I was doing it for quite a long time, over a year before anybody knew, really knew what I was doing. But then there was a story on the, the ABC uh, website about me it just exploded from there this interest and and that 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 surprised me too how how interested people were in uh, in this uh, ridiculous topic you know? so uh, yeah so that but finding them uh, is uh, a fair bit of uh, just looking out looking through old newspapers that, that are all online to see I, I look at maps often a lot and just see that here's a town did it have a cricket team so I'll do that sort of stuff when we had our relatively long lockdown, um, I, I discovered Google Maps and I would then sort of look into towns and so, sometimes you could just see you could just see the cricket pitch and that was very exciting and, that, you know, I, I was really itching to get, to get out on the road again. Another useful thing for me is I, I, a collaborator came along, Gordon Smith, who liked what I was doing and he started looking as well and started sending me photos. Uh, and Gordon is in the absolutely best job you could possibly be for this. He's a pharmacist, but he does locum work in country towns. So he'll go to a country town for three or four days to relieve the pharmacist who has a, has a break. What what better job could there be when you know some old bloke comes limping in, obviously obviously an old cricketer, and say, and Gordon, <laughs> and say, uh, you know, do you know any pitches? Yes, I do. Here's where. You know, and even to the point where you know someone was able to take him where uh, Western Australia's first Test cricketer was John Rutherford. His family uh, found out about what we were doing and was able to you know they were able to take Gordon to where John Rutherford first started playing. This sort of this this is the sort of stuff. So Gordon's been a really valuable uh, addition to what I'm doing as well. So there's, so there's those various uh, ways. Les, Les, you've give, you've given me a really good idea now. I've got to go and find a pharmacist. <laughs> Tra travelling pharmacist. Yeah, a travelling pharmacist. I think that's the answer. <laughs> it, couldn't, it couldn't be a better 
thing. It couldn't be better, could it? Absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, I, I've been very fortunate that I've, I, I've, I've met, I met a guy called Derek Pickin, who's involved with a cricket club in, in Rogerston in Newport. And he, he's been a mine of information. He is chairman of the local history society as well. And you get a guy like that and um, you sit down with him and he produces stuff. It's endless. It's fantastic. So if I could find another three Derek Pickins in South Wales, I'd be a really happy boy and, and a travelling pharmacist. Got contact recently from uh, a guy, and I just happened to be in a town near where he lived. And I, um, he, he'd rung. I, I was on, I was on TV and a country uh, TV program, and he'd rung the TV station. Just so happened, I wasn't that far from where he he lived. He told me, uh, for instance, he said, "Oh, there's a. Have you been to Jarrowwood? Jarrowwood's an old uh, timber town." sort of been condemned, but some people still live there. And I said, yeah, I found the cricket pitch at Jarrowwood. And I was quite proud of myself that I'd found the cricket pitch at Jarrowwood because it was, you know, pretty difficult to find. He said, yeah, yeah, but there's another one there. So <laughs> so we decided we would meet at Jarrowwood, which wasn't far away. And, yes, sure enough, about 30 metres from where I'd found the pitch, there was another one. Really? Um, yeah. So often, this is what, what happened too, that often with these, um, uh, when, when a, a pitch maybe a pitch that was built in 1900 sort of was superseded in 1930-something. They built another one, but not far away. And so the, on, on, on the, the oval when they were playing, there would have been two pitches. Just one, one would have been uh, you know, not used. It would have been a bit of a hazard for the fieldsman, that sort of stuff. So, but then he was able to take me to a farm that had a, that had a pitch that I would never have come to, gone to and, you know, take me to these other places. So that's people have been really generous in that way, just taking me out and finding and showing me places that I wouldn't have found ever. Tony, what have been the highlights for you in in your kind of work so far on the Lost Grounds in South Wales? I I, I go back to playing cricket on a on a Sunday for a, a team in Cardiff, which were known as Cardiff Choristers. Um, we, we were a very social side, but a very good cricket inside. On a Sunday, South Glamorgan was dry. There was no alcohol drunk in South Wales on a Sunday. So all our fixtures were out of South Glamorgan, and most of them were in Monmouthshire, where the pubs were open in Monmouthshire. And we developed, um, we developed um, a fixture list of playing on some beautiful grounds, um, which I can remember playing on, which sadly are no longer. So that was my enthusiasm to, was to try and find out where they are or what's happened to them um, and any photographs of, of them when, when, they were, when they were played on. My experience is getting, I, I getting odd phone calls from people sending me, photogra- or sending me photographs on, on email um, and I'm building up a collection of photographs now of lost grounds, which is beginning, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a, a bit like Les. I'm sort of, um, the more I see them, the more um, interested I'm becoming the subject. It is quite fascinating to look at old cars, people watching in deck chairs, games, and seeing old, old signal boxes. Um, there's a number of things which sort of date back a long time, and it's very, very interesting. It's a lesson in history, really. In Australia, Cricket is often really harsh. I, I can remember playing cricket on days when it's forty degrees, and I, I know when, when we when I was at West Perth, we one of our home grounds was a place called Hague Park, which is just out of Perth. It was in a sort of a dip, really hot. I can remember being in the field and just I'd see a car drive past, and I think 
Oh, God, I wish I was in that car. <laughs> and there was one house that had this blue and white blind, which just seemed so attractive. And I thought, in that house, it'd be cold water. And, I just, <laughs> and it was just it's so, sometimes it's so harsh. And you, you can imagine what it was, would be like on a day when it's 40 to 45 degrees playing. Uh, and there must be some nice oval and nice grounds around. There are some nice grounds around, but often it's really harsh. It doesn't have that beauty of uh, cricketing England and Wales and Scotland. I, and I was looking at the average rainfall for your hometown, Les, uh, and it says it's about 260 millimetres. Well, 2010, South Wales was an incredibly dry year. And in that year, South Wales had an average fall, rainfall of 1,129 millimetres. <laughs> it gives you a sense of the difference in the places. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think, I think, I think, Les, but we are we are surrounded by mountains as well. And and yeah. looking at some some of the pictures you I've got here, it's pretty flat, isn't it? And uh... to get a flat bit of land in Wales, especially in the valleys, it's quite an art to find a flat piece. So. If there, is, if there is a flat piece, there's a rugby ground, a football pitch, and a cricket ground. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I've often thought, too, of, uh, if you tried to do this in uh, India or Sri Lanka, you, you, would be, you would find an abandoned pitch, but there'd be 22 players on it. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where would you like to go with the uh, lost grounds work that you've done, Les? What would you like to do with all of this, the uh, photographs that you've collected so far and the information that you've kind of gathered? I want to do a book, and I'm sort of in the early process of doing that. And it's uh, it'll only be Western Australia. Some sort of a photo exhibition would be good too. And I've also got to try to find other ways of uh, presenting this. Uh, so you know, who knows? I have written a couple of books on Australian football, so I know what I'm doing in that realm. But uh, anything else, not so much. But I now get photos sent to me from all over Australia, so. One, one of the interesting things I was sent was uh, the uh, uh, pitch that Doug Walters' um, father laid a pitch in their farm in Dugong in New South Wales. And that's, that's another interesting thing that happens too is the farmer would lay a pitch for his sons and daughters. And uh, in, in, the Doug, in Doug Walters' case, his um, mother and sister were both representative players, serious cricketers. It wasn't only Doug. So when... when Old man Walters uh, laid the pitch. He did it for his wife and his daughter as well as his son. One of the things I've found too is in one of the old newspapers is a sort of a recipe of the amount of uh, cement, gravel, water, sand, etc., that you need to uh, make a concrete cricket pitch. Someone in the 1940s or someone had something had written to a newspaper saying, well, this is the, the way you do it. So I do have that. <laughs> I'd love to see a, a photographic account in, in the museum to start off with. Um, and also, I, I, the benefit of this podcast, I hope, is that um, we're going to go out wider than southeast Wales and the whole of Wales. And hopefully I'll, I'll get some calls from people in the whole of Wales with some photographs of lost grounds, which I haven't even looked at yet. So um, I think, uh, Les, I think, Wales is probably the size of one of the largest farms in um, in, in Australia, <laughs> so it's quite a small place. Um, so there, hopefully... there, would, there, there would be farms bigger than Wales. And... Yeah. <laughs> 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 the story that I've got to relate to you is um, a place called Congolin, which is 
about maybe 160 kilometres south of Perth in 1946 when the MCC was touring Australia. They played against an invitational team, which would have had some of the West Australian players and some others. They played against a country team in a town called Northam. The players also went to the Perth Royal Show. And when they were there, they ran into a farmer called Aubrey Fowler, and he invited them to come down to his farm at Congleglen. When they got down there, uh, they did do a little bit of shooting rabbits or whatever. Aubrey said uh, to um, the players who... And the main player was Bill Edrich. He said, you know, would you like to have a, a bit of a hit? We've got a pitch. We've got a pitch that we've laid out out here on, on the farm. Bill Edrich writes in um, one of his books that they went over to this pitch and he said, and, uh, you know, suddenly all these players were there as though this was going to happen anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, Aubrey Fowler said to him, Aubrey reckoned he'd developed a delivery that would, would uh, dismiss Bradman and he was keen to bowl and uh, Bill Edrich said it was a slow, looping off-break and bowling neck and crop. He clean-bowled Bill Edrich at Congress. Really? So, really? Yeah. yeah. Les, if you'd like to um, tell everybody where they can go to find your material, either about the uh, Australian Rules scoreboards or your, um, your, your, your lost cricket pitches. You just want to give us those details? Yep. So uh, it's, they're, they're pretty uh, unimaginative, but uh, on Instagram it's... Abandoned Cricket Pitches, and uh, the scoreboards is scoreboardpressure.com. One of the AFL coaches this week used the term. He said his team wasn't getting enough scoreboard nourishment. So, <laughs> so Vin and I were thinking we might have to change our, our website to scoreboardnourishment.com, but we won't do that. Now, scoreboardpressure.com and Abandoned Cricket Pitches on Instagram. Okay, that's lovely. Thanks ever so much for giving us your time today, Les. It's been lovely listening to you. Thank you. Best of luck. Come back to us when you've written the book. I, I, I will do, and I'll, I'll tune into the, um, to the podcast from now on too. It's great to talk to you, Les. You too, Tony. Thank Good you, luck. Thank you, for, thank you for the tip about the pharmacy man. <laughs> I'll send him over there. <laughs> if he starts annoying me too much, I'll send him to Wales. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. If you know of a lost cricket ground in Wales, you can contact Tony via the podcast Twitter feed at Welsh Cricket Pod, on our Facebook page, or with email at mwcpod1921 at gmail.com. Next week, we hope to bring you another Welsh language episode with our Alan Rees Chivers exploring the connections between Welsh literature and the game of cricket. Do join us again for some stories about the great game of cricket in the great country of Wales. Oilvawr, bye for now. Story you have Nigrani. Macrosek Gesselti. Ebosioch MWC pod nineteen twenty one at gmail.com. Nate Elchintidal in Facebook, Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast. Nate Intidal in Twitter at Welsh Cricket Pod. Do you have a story you'd like to share with us? If so, please contact email MWC pod nineteen twenty one at gmail.com 
or go to our Facebook page, Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast, or our Twitter, at Welsh Cricket Pod.